The disciples posed three questions to Jesus about the temple's destruction and the signs of his coming to establish the kingdom and usher in the messianic age. Jesus responds with the sermon about the end times in Matthew 24 to 25. Regarding the end times, the disciples have a basic working knowledge of them. They know that before the Messiah comes with his kingdom, Israel must pass through a season of tribulation. Hence, Jesus begins in Matthew 24, 4, explaining that the tribulation is the sign of his coming. The tribulation begins with ratifying of a covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. In Matthew 24, 4 through 14, Jesus sets forth a series of birth pangs announcing his coming and the birth of the Messianic age. These birth pangs occur during the first half of the tribulation and coincide with the seal judgments of Revelation 6. Seal 1 unleashes the Antichrist. Seal 2 unleashes global war. Seal 3 unleashes global famine. Seal 4 unleashes global death and damnation through sword, famine, plague, and wild beast. One-fourth of the world's population dies. Seal 5 unleashes the martyrdom of Jewish and Gentile believers. Seal 6 unleashes a global earthquake and astronomical phenomena. And Seal 7 unleashes meteors and lightning upon the earth and another global earthquake. As a result of the birth pangs or the unleashing of the seven sealed judgments, John writes in Revelation sixteen sixteen to 17, They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? As Jesus proclaims in Matthew 24, 8, All these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, as bad as the tribulation's first half will be, the second half will be much worse, with the judgments intensifying as Jesus' return draws nearer. In Matthew twenty four fifteen, Jesus reveals that following the sealed judgments, the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel and commits the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation includes abolishing God's law, outlawing the Sabbath and the Lord's feast, desecrating the temple, and declaring himself as God. What follows is a season of greatness. This greatness is not in the sense of fame or fortune, but in the sense of immensity or magnitude. Jesus reveals in Matthew twenty four sixteen to 28 that this season of greatness includes a great flight, a great tribulation, and a great deception. This season of greatness corresponds to the tribulation's second half. Now, the abomination of desolation will result in a great flight, according to Matthew 24, 16 to 20. Matthew 24, 16 to 20, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Again, the abomination of desolation will result in a great flight. A series of warnings are issued to those believers who see the abomination of desolation. Remember that while we as the church will be raptured before the tribulation begins, in a display of his grace, God will have the gospel declared during the tribulation, and many Jews and Gentiles will be saved. It is to those believers 
that Jesus provides these warnings. Jesus warns, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Since the abomination of desolation occurs in Jerusalem, those living in the surrounding country of Judea are in the most danger from Antichrist's destruction. His abomination is directed primarily at the Jewish people, affecting all who worship Yahweh. And as such, Jewish believers will experience the Antichrist's full wrath, especially those living in Judea who refuse to worship him or his image. Empowered by Satan, the Antichrist has the same hatred for Israel as Satan. Now you might wonder why. Why does Satan hate Israel? He hates them because they are God's chosen or elect people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 declares the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Satan also hates Israel because as Jesus declares in John 4, 22, salvation is from the Jews. Thus Satan seeks to destroy that which is precious to Yahweh and that which is the means of salvation. Furthermore, Satan thinks if he can destroy Israel, he will prevent their ultimate redemption and restoration, thus frustrating God's will. Again, those living in Judea must flee. They must escape the coming judgment. The English word fugitive derives from the Greek term fujo, rendered here as flee. The command to escape, to flee the coming danger, is similar to Jesus' earlier admonition to the disciples. He says in Matthew 10, 23, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. My friends, when danger arises, you and I as believers are encouraged to skate, escape when possible. There's no badge of honor for remaining in a place of danger. And yes, believers, we must endure many trials and tribulations. However, when such things intensify into outright danger, it is prudent to escape. There is no shame in moving on to a place of safety. Sadly, not everyone will heed Jesus' warning to flee. Zechariah thirteen eight to 9 prophesies it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Zechariah foretells that all those who do not heed Jesus' warning, two-thirds will be killed. However, the one-third that did not heed his warning and remained in Judea will cry out to God in repentance and faith, resulting in eternal salvation. But what of those who do heed Jesus' warning? What awaits them? Regarding those who flee Judea, John writes in Revelation 12, 6 and 14, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. In Revelation 12, believing Israel is personified by John as a woman. 
The two wings of the great eagle refers to Michael the archangel, Israel's protector. A time and times and half a time is a prophetic idiom for three and one half years. 1,260 days equates to 42 months or three and one half years. Following Jesus' admonition, those believing Israelites who fled Judea are safely delivered to the place God prepared for them by Michael the archangel. Daniel 12, 1 foretells, Now at that time Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time your people, everyone who's found written in the book of life, will be rescued. The Jewish believers of that day will be preserved from the Antichrist and his wrath for three and one half years. Interestingly, the tribulation second half equals three and one half years. Thus, these believers will be preserved and protected during the tribulation's final years. Next, Jesus warns, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. During the first century AD, Judean houses were built with flat roofs, functioning similarly to the modern patio. The rooftop was often used as well as a place for prayer. A set of outside stairs led to the rooftop. Anyone resting on the rooftop when the abomination of desolation occurs must flee and not waste time going downstairs and into the house to collect their belongings. Jesus also warns whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. During the heat of the day, the laborers would remove their cloaks, leaving them on a fence post or tree. Anyone working when the abomination of desolation occurs must flee. Do not take time to retrieve their coat. Jesus drops another warning, saying, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Woe, ooh, I, is either an announcement of judgment or an interjection of misery. Now, though Jesus uses woe to announce judgment against the Pharisees, he uses it here as an interjection of misery. This interjection of misery is due to the horrific tra tragedies that will befall pregnant and nursing women at this time. Perhaps some women will miscarry due to the stress of the Antichrist's wrath. Others, because of pregnancy or nursing, will be unable to flee. Many of them will have their children taken from them, even ripped from their wombs and murdered by the Antichrist henchmen. Hosea 13, 6 prophesies, Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Having warned these future believers, Jesus now urges them, Pray that your flight will not be in winter. Winters in Judea were cold and rainy. Travel during this season was limited. Armies often hunkered down in local villages. Josephus reports, While therefore the winter was his hindrance from going into the field, he put garrisons into the villages and smaller cities for their security. As it was the rainy season, the roads flooded, became buried in mud, and the dry creek beds filled with water became impassable. Jesus also urges, Pray that your flight will not be on a Sabbath. Though outlawed by the Antichrist, these believers are still observing the Sabbath. Jesus explains in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, 
God made it for humanity as a day of rest from one's labors. Knowing it is a day of rest, these believers struggle with whether it is biblical to flee on the Sabbath. During the second half of the tribulation, friends, these believers must be ready to flee with only their clothes, leaving behind their possessions, homes, family, and friends. Let me ask you a question. Would you leave behind your possessions, your homes, your family, and your friends for Jesus? Would you leave behind those things? What would you be willing to leave behind? Jesus says in Matthew 10.35, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He says later in Matthew 19.29, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Not only will there be a great flight, but the abomination of desolation will result in a great tribulation, according to Matthew 24, 21 to 22. A great tribulation, Matthew 24, 21 to 22. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Again, a great tribulation. Now, the tribulation is the last seven years of God's prophetic plan for Israel and the times of the Gentiles. Jesus calls the second half of this period a great tribulation. Tribulation, thalapsis, refers to physical, mental, social, or economic affliction. It will be a time of great tribulation or affliction because the tribulation's final three and one half years will be greater in judgment and destruction than the first three and a half years. God judges the earth seven times in the first half while he'll judge the earth 14 times in the second half. The affliction of the tribulation second half is unparalleled to any other time in human history. Jesus says that such affliction has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. The destruction resulting from the judgments of the tribulation's second half will dwarf the destruction resulting from Noah's flood. Its physical, mental, social, and economic horrors will be more excessive than Hitler's Holocaust. Friends, listen, the effects of the abomination of desolation will reverberate in heaven. The divine response will be to unleash seven judgments against the earth and humanity announced by angelic trumpets. The first trumpet sounds unleashing hail and fire mingled with blood, destroying a third of the trees and all the grass upon the earth. Revelation 8, 7. The second trumpet sounds unleashing a meteor that will fall into the sea, resulting in a third of the ocean becoming bloody the sinking of a third of the ships into the ocean, and killing a third of all ocean life. Revelation 8, verse 8. The third trumpet sounds, unleashing another meteor that will hit the earth, poisoning a third of the freshwater supply. Revelation eight ten. The fourth trumpet sounds, unleashing astronomical changes to the sun, moon, and stars, resulting in the loss of a third of a daylight and a third of nightlight. Revelation 8.12, the fifth trumpet sounds, 
unleashing a plague of demonic locusts that will afflict the unsaved for five long months. Revelation 9, 1 through 11. The sixth trumpet sounds, unleashing four wicked angels in prison within the Euphrates River who will lead a demonic army, killing a third of humanity. Revelation 9, 12 to 21. And finally, that seventh trumpet sounds, unleashing lightning and thunder and earthquakes and hailstorms upon the earth. Revelation eleven fifteen to 19. But it's not over yet. Following the trumpet judgment, seven bowls filled with judgment will be poured out on the earth. As the first bowl is poured out, it unleashes festering boils upon all those bearing the mark of the beast. Revelation 16.2 The second bowl is poured out, resulting in all salt water becoming bloody and the death of all sea creatures. Revelation 16.3 The third bowl is poured out, resulting in all fresh, fresh water becoming bloody, destroying all the fresh water supply. Revelation 16, 4 to 5. The fourth bowl is poured out, resulting in the supercharging of the sun so that people are scorched by its intense heat. Revelation 16, 8 to 9. The fifth bowl then is poured out, plunging the Antichrist kingdom into total darkness, driving people to madness so that they gnaw their tongues and curse God. Revelation 16, 10 to 11. The sixth bowl was poured out, resulting in the Euphrates River drying up to facilitate the movements of troops from the east, Revelation 16, 12. And then finally, the seventh bowl is poured out, resulting in lightning, thunder, and a great earthquake, causing worldwide destruction, Revelation 16, 17 to 18. Jesus underscores how devastating the afflictions of these judgments will be. He says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Cut short, kalabao, means curtailed or truncated. The length of tribulation second half is prophetically fixed at three and one half years and cannot be truncated. How then? Can Jesus say that it was cut short or truncated? Does Jesus imply that God contradicted himself? No. In short, God did not contradict himself. You see, friends, Jesus' statement simply reflects God's predetermined plan to limit his destructive judgment. God could wipe out the entire human race. However, he stops short of complete annihilation. Had God not decreed a limit to his wrath, no life would have been saved. Saved, Zozo, refers here not to eternal salvation, nor to eschatological salvation. Instead, it refers to earthly salvation or deliverance from harm or destruction. Now, this evokes another question. Why does God limit his destructive judgment. Jesus says, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Elect. Eklektos. Or chosen is plural and refers to a large group of people chosen by God for a purpose. Here, elect applies primarily to Israel. 
Yahweh declares in Isaiah 45 and verse 4, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Now, the Septuagint translators rendered the Hebrew term bachir, or chosen, with the Greek term eklektos. The term eklektos is broadened to also apply to those believing Gentiles during the tribulation. John writes in Revelation seventeen fourteen, those who are with the Lamb are the called and chosen, the electos, and faithful. God chose to curtail his hand of judgment against humanity for the sake of his chosen people. Now, though the church is sometimes referred to as the elect, the context of Matthew 24 is upon the remnant of Jewish believers living in the tribulation. The elect bride of Christ will have been raptured long before these events. The church has not replaced Israel, nor has God forever rejected Israel, his chosen people. Paul triumphantly declares in Romans 11.1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Friends, the tribulation, the final seven years of God's prophetic plan is the time of Jacob's sorrow. It is a time of sorrow because there will be affliction such as the world has never seen. And nevertheless, God will use the tribulation to redeem and restore Israel. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath. Indeed, God removes us, removes the church from the playing field, focusing solely on accomplishing his plan for his chosen people, Israel. So there's going to be a great flight. There's going to be a great tribulation. And in this season of greatness, the abomination of desolation will result in a great deception, according to Matthew 24, 23 to 28. A great deception. Verse 23 to 28. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance, so if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner room, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. A great deception. Declaring himself God, the Antichrist demands to be worshipped. He erects an image in the temple and expects all to worship him. Anyone who refuses will be killed. What about those who obey Jesus and fled? The Antichrist will present them with a great deception. Jesus warns, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. You see, friends, the Antichrist is going to attempt to draw out the hidden believers with false reports of the genuine Messiah's appearance. He will also employ others in his great deception. Jesus adds, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs or wonders so as to mislead. Like the Antichrist, the false messiahs and prophets are empowered by Satan to perform signs, simian, or miracles, and wonders, taras, or predictions. 
These miracles and predictions aimed to mislead planao or deceive believers. Jesus explains that their deception is so great that if possible, even the elect would be deceived. Again, the term elect, eklektos, refers to the believing Jews. The only means of protection from deception is God's word. Deuteronomy 13, 1-3 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true, concerning which he has spoken to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. See, the supposed prophet here in Deuteronomy 13 performed signs and wonders, but his message went against God's revealed word. Believer, do not listen to those whose message does not align with God's word. Friends, listen, signs and wonders are not adequate to guarantee the veracity of any prophet or teacher. Therefore, do not be taken in by such charlatans. Do not be taken in by their parlor tricks. Test their message against God's word. Listen, my friends, in every era, believers have needed to be discerning. And even today, 1 John 4, 1 commands, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because why? Many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, regardless of what they say about where the Messiah is, Jesus says, do not go out and do not believe them. Next, he explains why they should not believe these false prophets and provides two pieces of evidence. The piece of evidence is the the first piece of evidence is the manner of the Messiah's coming. The second piece of evidence is the event surrounding his coming. First, let's consider the manner of his coming. Jesus says, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Son of Man, a common title for the Messiah used in rabbinic writings, found in the Tanakh. The title, Son of Man, is adopted from Daniel 7, 3. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. His coming is going to be unlike any other appearance. Jesus' return will illuminate the sky, similarly to lightning illuminating the night sky. How will his coming illuminate the sky, you ask? Ezekiel 43, 2 says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and the earth shone with his glory. Friends, when the true Messiah comes, he will not come hiding in the wilderness or in the inner rooms. Instead, Jesus comes in the full splendor of his glory, lighting the sky. Second, regarding the events surrounding his coming, Jesus says, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This statement evokes the prophecy of Ezekiel 39, 17-20. There the prophet foretells, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and every beast of the field, assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are gutted. 
and drink blood until you are drunk. For my, from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you, you will be gathered at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. John explains in Revelation 19, 11, 17 to 18 and 21, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And the rest of the people were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Hence, Jesus returns as the world's armies gather in Israel for the battle of Armageddon. While he descends to earth, an angelic creature gathers carnivorous birds and animals to the valley of Megiddo. They gather because they, they will dine upon the carcasses of all Jesus' enemies. Everyone who wars against the Lamb will fall by his word. According to Revelation fourteen twenty, blood flowed up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. What a graphic picture of the slaughter of the wicked by Jesus when he returns. Indeed, when Jesus returns, there will be no doubt about where he is. He is going to come in splendorous glory as the armies of the world gather for battle. Contrary to the false prophet's claims, Jesus will not be hiding in the desert or behind a closed door. Many, perhaps even some of you, assume that when Jesus returns, he will stand on the Mount of Olives. Indeed, Jesus will stand on that mountain. However, it's not the first place he, he returns. The Messiah will first appear at the Valley of Megiddo to war against the Antichrist and the world's kingdoms. Then, listen carefully, he'll appear to the remnant of Jewish believers in the wilderness of Edom. Isaiah 63, 1-6. Who is this who comes from Edom? Why is your power red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And he answers, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. I tried down the peoples in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. After defeating his enemies, and rescuing the remnant of Jewish believers. Then, Jesus begins his victorious ascent upon the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 declares, In that day, Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives. There's going to be a great flight, a great tribulation, and a great deception. There are several lessons for us as present-day believers to take away from this text. First, let me say this. There are times when we must flee persecution. 
Jesus says in Matthew 10, 23, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Paul followed that exact pattern throughout his ministry. When Philippi's religious and civil leaders persecuted Paul, threatening his life and the lives of others, he went to Thessalonica and ministered. When Thessalonica's religious and civil leaders threatened the lives of Paul and others, he left and went on to Berea. When these same leaders came to Berea and stirred the people, Paul left and went to Athens. Friend, every one of us as a kingdom citizen and servant of the king must follow this pattern. Yes, believers, we must endure rejection and the subsequent fallout. But when the rejection intensifies into outright persecution, it is prudent for us to escape and move to another place to serve our king. There is no shame in you as a kingdom servant moving to another place of service under such conditions. Second, believer, be ready to forsake everything for Christ. Again, be ready to sacrifice everything for Christ. Christ's commands are sometimes divisive. They may divide believers from their possessions. They may divide you, believer, from your family and friends. Obedience in this life is costly. But it is a price worth paying in the scope of eternity. Third, Believers must always guard against false teachers' spiritual deception. Never fall for what these teachers do. Listen and discern to what they say. False teachers will put on a good show. They're trained in the art of performance. They'll make you feel good. But how you feel should never determine whether something is right or wrong. Judge them not by what they do or how they make you feel. Instead, judge them by what they say from the scriptures. Test the message. Test their message against God's word, for scripture is truth. Again, friends, let me say these three lessons. And let me ask you this. When persecution comes, what are you going to do? I hope you obey God's command to flee. Second, are you ready to forsake everything for Christ? Are you ready to choose the, the path of obedience? A hard path, a narrow path, a costly path. And third, are you guarding against spiritual deception? Are you testing everything by God's word? Who are you making judgments of right and wrong based on how you feel. Your circumstances will change. God's word never does. Father God in heaven, Lord, we come into your presence through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I thank you, Father, again, you have revealed your will to us, your plan for the future. But Father, what a dark plan this is. This plan, this divine plan of yours, Lord, is going to bring great darkness upon this earth. And yet it is part of your plan of restoring and redeeming your people, Israel. Father, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for redeeming us from the tribulation. We won't go through this. And Father, I give you the thanks and the praise for that. 
I pray for those who will come to know you in the tribulation, those who will suffer under the, the wrath of the Antichrist. I pray for those future believers, Father, that you'll do as your word says and protect them. Father, Lord, for each of us, I ask forgiveness. I ask that you forgive us for not discerning between good and evil. I pray that you'd forgive us for acting on our emotions, what we feel, and rather instead of your word. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us, not only for allowing ourselves to be deceived, but for not forsaking everything for your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would go forth today committing ourselves to you, committing ourselves, Lord, to follow you in obedience, to discern what is genuine and what is false. More importantly, Lord, help us to be ready, be prepared to forsake everything for the sake of your Son. Give us that grace. Give us that enablement, Father, to be faithful in difficult days. We ask this of you, and we pray, God, that we'll go forth as a testimony to a lost and dying world of men and women who are counting everything but loss for your son. And to this we say, Amen.